What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. Two years ago, after George Floyd was killed by police in Minneapolis, the U.S. exploded in revolt. We saw the largest coordinated protest in the country's history. They focused against police violence, certainly in response to that tragic death, but also because ordinary people saw themselves or their friends in George Floyd's shoes and have been seeing the ways police use violence to enforce laws, or try to, in similar tragic and also more mundane ways for a long time. That 2020 protest movement created demands that were particular to local experiences, but many of them followed the umbrella of defund the police, a demand to shift money away from the violence of policing and to funnel those funds into resources that don't rely on violence to make us safe. It's fundamentally an abolitionist demand, but abolitionist demands weren't new in 2020. We're going to spend the next hour with a scholar activist who has been on the front lines of the abolitionist movement for decades. Ruth Wilson Gilmore is a professor of geography at the Graduate Center with the City University of New York. She's also a co-founder of the national abolitionist organization Critical Resistance, and she has a new book called Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation. For full disclosure to our listeners, I myself spent some years as a member of the Oakland chapter of Critical Resistance, although during that time I never had an opportunity to work directly with Ruth. And for that reason, and many others, I'm thrilled to welcome her to our show. Ruthie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jesse Strauss, for the invitation. And hello, KPFA. It's been a while since I've been on the air. Well, welcome back. We're here to talk about your new book, but of course, your new book chronicles a long history of yours in the abolitionist movement. It's a collection of essays that span about 30 years. I loved spending time with this book. I planned to read it during my working hours and ended up staying up till one in the morning numerous nights, just just parsing my way through some of these concepts. Maybe we can start by defining some terms that come up a lot as themes. Your new book is called Abolition Geography, and let's start with basic step-by-steps. When you say abolition, Ruthie Gilmore, what are you describing? When I say abolition, I am describing a world in which people take seriously in everything that they do, where life is precious, life is precious. So abolition is about building the capacities to be present to one another in the world um, in order that we can flourish, in order that we can study and learn and be healthy so that we can have education early in life and rest late in life so that we cannot burn the planet toward the goal of producing profit for a few capitalist firms. All of that is what I mean by abolition. Now, usually when we hear people talking about abolition, we hear a lot of really particular references to particular power structures. And I didn't hear you say any of that just now. Um, When you think about abolition, are you thinking specifically about policing and prisons, surveillance? Well, of course, I have to be thinking specifically about policing, prisons, and surveillance, because policing, prisons, and surveillance are expressions 
of the structural inequality that capitalism is built on. This has been true throughout the entire history of capitalism. And as much as it has varied and changed across the terrains of the earth through colonialism, slavery, genocide, neoliberalism, and so forth, the fact is that police, prisons, and surveillance have been central to the capacity of capitalism to save capitalism from capitalism by using the forces of organized violence to suppress people in order for the work of organized abandonment to go forward as capitalism constantly seeks new areas for profitability. So we're going to get a little bit more in depth later about forces of organized violence that you just described. Um, Still with a couple more definitions. Your book is called Abolition Geography. We just talked about abolition. Geography is also your academic field. And one phrase that I read in your book that I loved about that is uh, you said freedom is a place. Can we talk about what geography itself means in your context and how it helps us engage with abolition? Sure. That's a great question. Thanks for asking it. I, um, I found my way to geography as a discipline for study when I was in my 40s. I had been an organizer for a long time. I had worked in a variety of different kinds of day jobs, you name it. I'd been a car mechanic, a financial aid officer, an artist model. I'd done all kinds of things. And in that time, I was constantly trying to come to an understanding of how the world was changing and why. And I found my way, oddly enough, back to where I had first become um, enamored of communism, and that was in the study of geography. So I grew up during the Cold War, also during the height of the post-World War II civil rights movement, also during the height of the anti-colonial hot and less hot wars that were going on around the planet. All of that is where I formed my consciousness and my purpose in life. When I was about 12 years old in the early 1960s, um, I, in, in middle school, we called it junior high in those days, I uh, took a, the one geography course and only geography course that I was enrolled in until I became a graduate student many decades later. In my geography textbook, imagine this, in 1962, the textbook explained for middle school students the difference between capitalist production and a planned economy, which is to say socialist production. And at that time, I read about planned economy and I thought, what a good idea. What a good idea. Many, many years later, having made my way through various uh, left parties, organizations, constantly working for liberation, against capitalism, against racism, against apartheid, I found my way back to geography as a graduate student so that I could study, as it were, 
the relationships of people, places, and things, which is what the study of geography is. In doing that, I became a very serious student of political economy and uh, figured out, along with my teachers and a lot of reading and a lot of the work I had done before school and working closely always with comrades on the ground everywhere, how to think about the rise of what we started calling in the mid-1990s the prison industrial complex. And by thinking that through really carefully with a lot of detail, we could see the relationship of that expansive and thickening presence of police and prisons and jails and surveillance on the ground with the reorganization of the capacities, the productive capacities of both the private sector and the public sector, wherever we looked around the United States and beyond. So what geography therefore means in the title of my new book, Abolition Geography, is the relationships, the dynamic relationships that people have with each other and with their environments, whether it's the nat natural environment or the built environment, and how people manipulate their own energies and experiences and visions to create a world that is not reproducing the carceral geography that so many people are suffocating under. So essentially kind of like part of the struggle of movement building involves making a place. That's exactly right. Making a place. If we don't make a place, we don't have a movement. And I don't mean place for listeners who might think place means have an office, although that's important. Place means having an entire array of possibilities for people to live, work, play, and pray, and study in such a way that they can feel and uh, express their liberated potential and joy in the world. So we can say that freedom is a place when it is uh, the result of long-term struggle and planning and careful development in the state of Kerala in southwestern India. Or we can say that freedom was a place during radical reconstruction at the end of the U.S. Civil War when, as W.E.B. Du Bois teaches us, people put together incredibly vibrant and complex communities, bringing into being visions and ideas and relationships they had already had when slavery was still the law of the land. We can follow this way of thinking around the world and see how, for example, the MST in Brazil is constantly making freedom as a place through land occupations, the development of agriculture, the protection of long distance migrants in urban communities, and so on. It is generally 
um, understandable to all kinds of people who are struggling to understand that freedom is a place. So if freedom is a place, also you, you talk about uh, what you describe as carceral geography, which I don't know if this would be an exact equivalent or, or oppositional phrase, but like violence is a place, like what we experience now is a place and we need to remake that. Is that right? Well, it's not so much that violence is a place as the violence is one of the principal determinants of the kind of place that carceral geographies have become. So if we think about um, uh, the expansion and consolidation of uh, imprisonment in the state of California from the early 1980s forward, we see the unrolling across the landscape of what I came to call carceral geography. The carceral included, but is by no means restricted to, the buildings that the state of California dotted around the rural landscape. So all of those prisons are part of it. But also the carceral includes all of the forces and relations that enabled the state of California to sweep tens and then hundreds of thousands of people off the streets of urban and rural California and into the criminal justice system and into the penitentiaries. It also includes the courts and the, um, uh, the various civilian personnel who work in, in those facilities and in those places. And finally, and this is really quite important and certainly uh, gives us the opportunity to talk about what happened in San Francisco yesterday, it includes the ideologies that people have concerning what kinds of problems exist and what the solution to those problems should be. So all of that is what created the place that I call carceral geography. And the forces of organized violence play an enormous role in the carceral because the carceral is by definition unfreedom. So in that description, you've used quite a few references already in our conversation to slavery. I'm wondering if you can help to draw the line for our listeners from what we know as an abolitionist movement many, many years ago to end chattel slavery into a conversation about an abolitionist movement against carceral geographies today. All right. So slavery was, and wherever it exists today, and it does exist today, is a form of carceral geography. People are violently dominated when they are held against their will, whether or not they are chattel, i.e. can be sold, or whether or not their labor is exploited. So there's plenty of slavery in the history of slavery that might or might not have been chattel for the purpose of trading in human beings and might or might not have been for the purpose of exploiting labor. In some cases, slavery uh, conferred on the owners of slaves status. I mean, think about that. Just think about that. 
thinking now about contemporary abolition and its antecedents in the abolitionist movement of the, well, it really started with the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, It started before that with the beginning of the slave trade to the island of San Tomé, the west coast of Africa. That abolitionist movement certainly underlies the movement today. And the movement today understands or should understand that that slavery did not um, occur separately from the rise and consolidation of capitalism on a world scale. Therefore, contemporary abolition is not only about fighting back against unfreedom as it's experienced by people one by one by one, but also opposing the kinds of relationships that demand unfreedom and create the kind of precariousness that unfreedom then steps in to uh, displace but never resolve. So contemporary abolition is anti-capitalist as well as anti-enslavement wherever we encounter it around the world. There are people who call themselves abolitionists who are Muslim women in Singapore. Their history is not a history of chattel slavery, but their history has been a history of precariousness and unfreedom and abolition has been sensible for them to assert their view of what the world should be and how they're going to get there. We're listening to the voice of Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Her latest book is Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation. I want to actually step back into a conversation that, that is a reference to your 2007 book, Golden Gulag, which was a geographic study of the prison system in California. I know you also did organizing work in relationship to and in opposition to the California expansion of prisons and the economy surrounding prison expansion. When proposals come up to build new prisons, they come with promises of job creation in areas like construction, for prison guards, for food vending, You've spent a lot of energy debunking myths that prisons are actual job creators. How does that play out in the real world? How does it play out in California when a prison is proposed? Is there an economic benefit to a community? Could there be an economic benefit to a community where a prison is built? And then since your book was published in 2007, I'm wondering if you've paid attention and tracked uh, how those prisons that you described and explored in that book have related to their local economy since? All right. Uh, Good question. Let me just say in a very friendly way, but somewhat scoldy, my book is about the real world. There's nothing not real world about that book. Nothing. It's entirely empirically solid. So everything that I talk about in that book is from the real world. It's about the real world. It takes measurements of the real world and tells us what we saw. 
It's not a theoretical exercise in what might happen, it's what did happen. And what did happen was that city after city after city in California turned to prisons for local economic development and were disappointed. They were disappointed because the initial burst of economic activity associated with the construction of the prison did not last locally. Now, it might be counterintuitive for listeners to think that a, um, a city built on the edge of a small town that had a hundred uh, million dollar um, price tag on it and a huge annual payroll would not produce economic benefits for that town. And the answer to that puzzle is to think about the geography, the actual lived geography of who does what, where, and to what end in these prisons. So for example, as we learned over and over and over again, the people who had the best paying jobs, guards, generally did not live anywhere near the prison. They lived in other counties or far away. And one of the reasons that that was possible in California is that most of California has a very mild um, climate and it's easy to drive a long way to and from work. Um, it's also true that in many, many prison towns, guards would uh, pool their resources and rent a, a pied-à-terre, a, a place where they would sleep for three or four nights a week while working, and then they would go home to wherever home was for the rest of, uh, the rest of their week. Uh, other economic benefits that were expected but often not realized included things like um, improved roads and improved water systems and so on and so forth. Very often what would happen in California, and we see this happening in places around the United States in a variety of climates and in a variety of topographies, is that the cost of improving infrastructure uh, promised to be better when the prison came, fell on the shoulders of the town that was looking for the benefits. Obviously, if there's a prison or there's any kind of public works that employs people, the employees are getting their paychecks and they're living somewhere. So somebody is benefiting from that um, circulation of wages. There was a case in uh, the southern San Joaquin Valley, kind of in the where the hill starts to rise up into the, what's the cross range called? The Tehachapi Mountains, a place called, um, I think, Shafter. Anyway, Shafter had uh, become the site of not one of the state's mega prisons, but a small prison, what they call a um, step-down facility. So there are uh, prisons in California, this is small, that were designed to, for about 500 people. These are in the, the, under the authority for prisons for men. And Shafter got one of these prisons that it managed on behalf of the state in order to reap the economic benefits from that prison. The benefits didn't come. So the city manager of that town, when approached with a request that they put an additional prison step-down facility in his town, said, no, we're not going to do it. The only way, 
he said, this town would agree to take one of those facilities is if the places where the guards live and shop and the other workers in the prison live and shop would give us back some portion of that revenue. So he tried to create a kind of a special purpose district between his town and Bakersfield to try to get some of these uh, dollar money resources back. It didn't happen, and they said no. I, I've studied this to shreds. This is the real world. It is the real world. And we saw time and time again that the prisons did not produce for the communities what the communities uh uh, the community leaders, city government, business roundtable, and so on and so forth, assumed they would get. I went toe-to-toe with city managers from towns around California that have prisons who gave, gave me the third degree, and they agreed that my analysis was right. Why was it right? Because I actually counted what was in front of me on the ground rather than looking at um, abstract models that planning um, uh, professionals had put together that claimed there was going to be all kinds of economic benefit for towns that didn't happen. And I want to say one more thing about an outlier, because somebody listening to our show is going to say, but hey, what about Susanville? Susanville, which is way up in far north California, has brought suit against the state of California, arguing that the state should not close the prison there because it would become economically detrimental to that town. Because of the um, isolation of Susanville, uh, because it is less likely that people who work there would live far from the prison, as is the case for Corcoran and so many of the prisons in the San Joaquin, it might well be that the, uh, the catchment area for the um, wages that the prison employees spend uh, accumulate to the benefit of the town. However, if we look at, the, at Susanville and we look at the surrounding county, what we see is that most, many, 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 of the people who have jobs in that county are working in some kind of public sector work, whether for the federal government or the state government. And it is an outlier, which then does not justify the argument that Susanville and the plaintiffs in that case have brought, which is that somehow the economic well-being of a group of people should depend on the unfreedom of another group of people. So we're talking about prison expansion and prisons themselves. I want to shift a little bit to a conversation about people who are imprisoned and also how we relate and have conversations about abolition in relationship to actual humans who are locked up. Um, one phrase that you bring up in your book is the problem of innocence, meaning that when people describe prisons as bad because the wrong people are locked up, the people who are innocent, the people who don't deserve that punishment, that takes away from the fundamental premise of abolition that prisons are bad even when they lock up the supposed right people, people who've hurt others or something like that. 
I'm wondering if you can talk about the problem of innocence specifically in the context of three questions that you've spent a lot of time exploring. What work do prisons do? For whom? And to what end? Okay, great question. I got to thinking about the problem of innocence because in the 1990s, it became more and more the vogue for people to uh, express opposition to prison by insisting that the plurality, if not the majority, of people locked up were there uh, wrongly, wrongly convicted or for what we came to call the non-non-nons, non-serious, non-violent, non-non-non convictions. And yet, when we looked more closely, we could see a number of things uh, come very clearly into view. One of them was that the um, assertion of innocence is never a secure thing, that one day innocence can be the next day not innocence. And we saw that through the constant, constant churning in the state legislature in the Committee on Public Safety that would like create new crimes and add uh, sentences to crimes already on the books. So the process of criminalization means that innocence is not a secure defense ever, much less a shelter. The second thing has to do with the question of who should be locked up. And this raises the question about what we should do about harm. And does harm, which does happen, it does happen, I don't pretend it doesn't, uh, should harm be um, best uh, taken care of by waiting until it happens and then having better punishment for those who cause the harm? Or is there not, or are there not, myriad ways that people use to interrupt the kinds of relationships that otherwise degenerate to harmless ones, whether those have to do with inadequate money resources or the effects of drug and alcohol or um, the the, uh, vulnerability of people in households where domestic violence um, is is, uh, a possible a possible harm that can come to people, uh, adults and children as, uh, alike. All of these questions are questions that require us to think differently from the pattern of, well, there are the innocent and we should protect them, and then there are the guilty and we should punish them, and instead take a step back and say, what can we do about harm? And how can we do that as effectively as possible? So there are people like the Interrupting Criminalization Program that Mariam Kaba and Andrea Ritchie have run for years who put together resources called A Million Experiments that give lots of examples of the kinds of things that ordinary people do to interrupt the possibility of harm. And there are other resources like the uh, storytelling organizing project that Mimi Kim and many people over the years, including people you know, like Rachel Herzing and Isaac Ontiveros worked on, again, to bring together the stories and examples 
and um, uh, practices of people who have figured out how to interrupt the possibility that somebody will come to harm rather than figure out a better punishment once the harm has occurred. I think this question of harm and how to deal with it in a way that supports healthy, safe communities is really important. I have one more question about the problem of innocence, though, that I, I really wanted to ask, because with this framework, um, you, you know, we have these innocence projects that, that work hard, put tons of resources into f- exonerating people who've been imprisoned wrongfully for many years and sometimes actually successfully free people. We just a month or two ago in San Francisco had the San Francisco Innocence Commission. It's officially part of former district attorney Chesa Boudin's office exonerate someone who was wrongfully convicted 32 years ago of murder. How do you wrap your mind around when people do get exonerated through the lens of what you call the problem of innocence? And is it something that we should celebrate? Well, of course we should celebrate it. I, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, a shame that um, uh, it appears that uh, somebody like me pointing out the problem of innocence makes it seem as though I'm this cold-hearted person who doesn't care that sometimes some people have suffered wrongly. But... The fact that they have suffered wrongly does not give them an exclusive hold on suffering. This is, this is the problem, that setting up that distinction is a problem, even though I, I read and, and, and my eyes filled with tears uh, about the, the, the gentleman who was uh, recently exonerated. And I sat on a panel some years ago in New York with one of the Central Park Five, who also was exonerated. And I talked then about the problem of innocence and he was very angry with me. And I could feel that and it was fine. I could feel it and it was fine. But it is a problem because it still insists that there are people who should suffer. That is is the problem that we face. And I think I'd, I'd just like to take this up because you, you opened the door to uh, talking about former prosecutor Chesa Boudin. Former prosecutor Chesa Boudin, as, as people know, was just uh, recalled in an election yesterday in San Francisco. You probably have covered it on KPFA. And I want to remind people that the voter turnout was abysmally low. And I find that an astonishing thing, given how much money the people who bankrolled that recall effort put into recalling Cheza Boudin. So then the question is, why did they spend all that money to get a guy out of office who seems like he's trying to do decent things, like equal application of the law, for example, who seems like he's trying to do decent things. Now, the New York Times, the newspaper of record, publishing the kind of propaganda that the newspaper of record is so famous for, 
uh, use the word crime in the headlines, even though we know, no matter who does the counting, that violent and property crime in San Francisco is at a four-decade low. It's low. So is it crime? No, it seems to be homelessness. Oh, well, that's something else. The fact that people who have been uh, suffering the organized abandonment of the constant, constant rise in real estate values in San Francisco and the concomitant demise, not only in affordable housing, but in the kinds of jobs that working people can get to keep themselves sheltered and fed seems to be the problem. Then we see that the person who bankrolled getting Chesa Boudin out of office is also somebody who's put a lot of money into um, destroying public education and destroying public education uh, teachers' unions, i.e. people who have struggled to be able to have a decent wage for doing the hard and wonderful work of teaching. This is something that I do. So what we see is Chesa Boudin being run out of the San Francisco district attorney's office is class war. That's what it is. If he was trying to bring equal application of the law to police, to employers who steal wages and tips from their employees, and to exonerate those few people who um, he and his people in the commission could identify as having been wrongly convicted, and that is not acceptable, then what we're looking at is class war. I'm wondering if we can turn to a conversation about policing um, and how police budgets always seem to grow. Uh, Joe Biden's latest budget increases federal police spending by $32 billion. Um but when it comes down to like people's own experiences and relations, relationships to harm and feelings of safety, many people do think of police as a resource because they feel genuinely scared and they want someone to be on hand to come intervene um, in, in a situation. How do we address people's feelings that they're unsafe and how do we how do we think about creating resources that can intervene without causing more harm well you know here's here's one of the big problems that we face and the big problem is that there it has been a pretty um deep and longstanding conflation of facts and values. So people feel unsafe and they feel dread about all kinds of things. Uh, the fact that people say, I don't feel safe because somebody is sleeping on the sidewalk blows my mind, but I know that they say that. My sister-in-law says that. Um, and then though that that fact turns into a value for them. And the value is I should not have to feel unsafe. And the way for that feeling to make sense to me is I should know there is somebody called the police who are somehow between me and this homeless person on the street. And yet they're actually not between them. 
but we're back to facts. And we can't change people's values by arguing the weakness of their facts. I just said, crime in, in the city and county of San Francisco is at a four-decade low. And people will say, yeah, but it's not a safe place, right? So that's a fact value problem that, that we must address. How do we do it? I'm not exactly sure how. There are um, all kinds of people uh, who are creative artists, people like um, uh, Boots Riley and others who can help people see how their values have been shaped by the uh, experience of having come of age in a carceral geography and it has become the norm for them. Somebody like Boots Riley can help people kind of laugh their way out of that and maybe see in a different way what is possible. For other people, the realization comes through different kinds of struggle. For example, I have done a lot of work, uh, political education work with the California Nurses Association and National Nurses United. And they, as people who have been on the front line of the pandemic for now more than two years, see all kinds of vulnerabilities coalescing as group differentiated vulnerability to premature death that they are fighting in their hospitals place by place by place. So they, the nurses in their most recent um, uh, national convention, uh, produced a number of resolutions in which they uh, criticized the fact that so much of uh, annual expenditure at the federal, state, and municipal levels goes to military and the police when what we need are things like Medicare for all. So they have learned this on the front lines, but also I think they see the problem of, for example, globalization in their everyday lives because they work at hospitals that are you know, in one town or another or another, but the owners of those hospitals are big global firms like HCA. So they're fighting for decent pay and benefits and work, uh, staffing and work conditions at these local sites, fighting through their union against a behemoth that spans the globe, not unlike Amazon, while also experiencing the organized abandonment of all of the people who cannot turn to Medicare to have adequate uh, resources to take care of their life at the same time that they, nurses, are very often from families and themselves are long distance migrants. So they have un some understanding of borders and remittances and all of the things that really bring to the front of our attention what class struggle looks like in the 21st century. We're talking with Ruth Wilson Gilmore, whose new book is Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation. Um, in one of the essays from your new book, a piece that was actually originally published in 2002, you talked about that time as a turning point, and I'm going to quote you for just a second. You wrote that teetering on the verge of the new millennium, we're ready to fall back into the end of the 19th century, the era of Jim Crow, of Plessy v. Ferguson, 
or else we can leap into the future. So it's been 20 years since you wrote that. And I'm wondering if we can talk about how we've leapt into the future over those past 20 years. And also wondering if we can talk about kind of your own trajectory in the abolitionist movement. Um, I imagine that in decades of this work that you're thinking has also changed and developed over time. What made you feel that now's the time to republish the pieces that are in your new book that were uh, originally published over many different years? Well, to answer the last question first, uh, what made me think to publish it is my uh, comrades Alberto Toscana and Brenna Bondar came to me with the idea that these things should be collected because a lot of them were difficult to find and they thought it would be a good idea for people to be able to read this work and think about it and, and decide how it might be helpful for the, the struggle ahead, which is to say the struggle from this year going forward. But thinking about that, that uh, little quote that you just shared with us, um, teetering, fall back or leap forward, oh my goodness, in so many ways in the United States today, we see an awful lot of falling back. We see voting rights restricted in jurisdiction after jurisdiction, the um, uh, rather rigid gerrymandering of the entire electoral landscape has uh, made it harder and harder and harder for there to be any kind of shift in the, um, the collected forces uh, of, of state governments, uh, much less of the U.S. Congress. We also see that in the uh, various uh, determinations about um, everything from public education, reading material, to um, the uh, criminalization of of parents, of uh, transgender and gender nonconforming children, to so many other things that we are sort of falling back into that kind of late 19th, early 20th century form of government in which um, the sorting and stacking machine uh, makes it almost impossible for people in general to flourish. So that is the, the teetering back. But also, um, because I refuse to be pessimistic about everything, though I could whine for hours, um, we are leaping into a future in which uh, more and more people are thinking and talking and arguing about and debating what the role of, for example, police should be. And this is not only true in the United States, but in many parts of the world. And in places where um, uh, people have felt very vulnerable because their everyday lives are extremely, extremely precar precarious, I am learning from my comrades uh, around the world that instead of turning to higher and higher visibility policing, which is what communities thought they wanted, they're turning to other forms of solidarity and self-government in order to keep one another safe. So they do not presume 
uh, irrationally or naively that nobody anywhere intends anybody else harm. That is not the case, but rather they do presume that by combining our talents and our abilities to look out for each other, which after all is what the history of urbanization is, that we can figure out ways to combine our strengths and to um, merge our, um, our skills in order to make life better for everybody. So finding sources of optimism is of course so important um, as we think about how to leap forward from this point. I'm gonna ask a question that departs a little bit from your book and it might be a little personal, but when we talk about abolition, we're saying that policing and prisons, the carceral state doesn't make us safe. I guess I'm wondering, do you yourself go through the thought exercise of when you feel personally unsafe, what are real concrete material things that you think about that you can imagine that could make you feel safe? Well, that's a great question. Um, and a totally fair one. So, you know, I'm, I'm getting on in years. I'm 72 years old and I walk with a cane. So I'm not very agile anymore. I can't run from anybody. I can barely hobble from anybody. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, life is not as easy as it was, even though I am very fortunate to have had a, for the last 20 years, a well-paying job and, you know, decent benefits and very good health care. I'm fortunate for, in all of those respects. But what do I do? I do what I've done ever since I was a kid. Um, so I grew up in a neighborhood that was a working class neighborhood. There were a lot of immigrant families in my neighborhood, mostly immigrants from uh, Western and Southern Europe, to tell you the truth. Um, as well as uh, some from Latin America. My neighborhood had been a neighborhood of black and red people, but when, as it developed in the 1920s, the new in-migrants were people from, again, Europe and Latin America. So I grew up in a very uh, diverse neighborhood in the working class community of New Haven, Connecticut. And what, you know, the, the way we came up was that uh, we knew we were always being watched, but it wasn't by the police. It was by somebody's grandmother. And we were all healthily worried about the opinion that anybody's grandmother would have of any of us. And now that I'm grandmotherly age um, and looking back over time, here are some of the things that, that I did then and that I do now. First is... In my everyday life, when I'm out and about in the world, I talk to people. I don't talk to them for a long time, but I greet people. I become familiar, whether I'm in a, a strange place or in my own neighborhood here in New York or wherever I've lived. Um, I, I talk to people and just have a very um, low-key but friendly uh, relationship with them. And it's, I don't do that in a calculated way, thinking if I get in trouble, they will help me. But I also think that if I get in trouble or they get in trouble, we will help each other. Um, uh, when I feel a little nervous, I walk with somebody. I don't walk by myself. Um, 
I, you know, I've, I've had people in my family murdered. So it's not as though I've just had this like magical life where nobody has ever gotten hurt. And therefore, I just don't know what it's like to grieve and feel the pain of somebody taken out of your life. That is not true. And, you know, other kinds of harms have happened to me and my loved ones. But the fact is that when I feel the safest is when with strangers or friends, I feel like there is that um, uh, really uh, light but vibrant human connection that comes from simple things like saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or laughing about something, or putting my hand out when I'm crossing the street for a young person to help me because I can't quite make it up a step. All of those sorts of things. In other words, demonstrating a certain kind of interdependence is part of the work we need to do. And you probably know from you know, your own communities, from having done organizing work with critical resistance, from wherever you've been in the world, that in many places where people are in often in the most precarious and least well-resourced situations are places where generosity of resources and spirit both are the most abundant, which then makes us wonder about what has happened in the United States of America, the richest place in the history of the world, where generosity seems to have become on the wane. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense until you think about how the culture of capitalism uh, encourages people, even people who don't want to be encouraged in this way, to imagine that generosity is a sign of weakness and possession is a sign of strength, rather than inter interdependence is actually the most beautiful human quality that we can exercise. The beauty of developing and demonstrating interdependence. Um, we've been talking to Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Her latest book is Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation. Ruth, we're going to have to end it there. I feel like I have a hundred more things that I want to talk to you about, and maybe one day I'll get the opportunity. But for now, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. Again, Ruth Wilson Gilmore's new book, a collection of essays from throughout her decades as a scholar and activist, is called Abolition Geography, Essays Toward Liberation. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>